From the City of Angels near the Pacific Ocean, good morning, good evening, wherever you may be across the nation, around the world. I'm George Norrie. This is Coast to Coast AM. Later tonight is planet Earth made of two planets. Here's what's happening. NATO is launching its largest exercise since the Cold War, rehearsing now how U.S. troops could reinforce European allies in countries bordering along Russia and on the alliance's eastern flank if a conflict were to flare up. Some 90,000 troops are due to join the steadfast defender drills that'll run through May. At least 14 people in Tennessee have died as a result of the bitterly cold winter storm that dumped snow across the southern state this week. Parts of Nashville have seen more than nine inches of snow since Sunday, nearly double the city's annual average snowfall. The number of new cancer cases in the U.S. expected to top 2 million for the first time this year. Based on new research, that also points to shifting age patterns among cancer patients and a troubling increase in overall cancer incidence among young people younger than 50 years old. Christian Wild from MyHeartBook.com is with us. Christian, what's causing this? Well, George, not only are these alarming statistics for the medical community, this is a surprise to you and me and the listeners who have come to believe that with all the attention and emphasis on cancer risk factors, that we have realized, like weight control, proper low-fat diets, along with the right amount of sleep, consistent daily exercise, which they insist on, and we know it's true, the cancer rates would be dropping. And yet we hear from CNN today and other studies that this rise in cancer among people under the age of 50 has been a best-kept secret, but the word the word has finally come out. The, uh, those under 50 are among the age group most affected, and the studies have been showing a steady increase instead of a decrease, like we have been led to believe, I guess, uh, a, a decrease in cancer rates with each passing generation. So here again are a few of the risk factors identified by the experts. Sleep deprivation among the young, highly processed foods, sugary drinks, and diabetes too, which have all been contributing to this unprecedented cancer increase. But George will soon be hearing about a similar link among our younger people, and heart disease as well. All right, my friend. MyHeartBook.com is Christian's website. President Joe Biden has a slim lead over former President Donald Trump in a potential presidential contest between the two, according to two recently released U.S.-wide polls, a stark improvement for the Democratic incumbent following the release of three national polls putting him behind the Republican frontrunner. The surveys from pollsters Ipsos and YouGov gave Mr. Biden a lead of between one and two percentage points. That's not much. To a Newsweek analysis released earlier this month suggested Mr. Trump is on track for a second White House term to his stronger performance in key swing states. In a moment, another presidential hopeful, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., joins us. And here's Kevin Randall with his weekly report on what's in the skies. Hi, Kevin. 
Hi, George. How you doing? Okay, my friend. Well, you know, last week I mentioned that the House Committee on Oversight and Accountability had their briefing on last Friday. And as I thought, there wasn't much that came from it. What I've learned is that many of the representatives were frustrated by the lack of anything new, and there was no real answer supplied. They were apparently wondering if there was anything in the claims of David Crush, which had been called credible and urgent by an inspector general. However, according to one of the members of the committee, they hadn't got any answers that they needed. In a counter to the negative contact comments, Robert Garcia said it was reasonable to believe that everyone in the room received probably new information. I'll point out the qualification here. Probably uh, here, which is probably received the new information, but they have no clue as to what that probably new information was. There was a new bill unveiled, a bill that would allow civilian pilots to report UAP to the FAA. I'm not sure why this is necessary. I would think that the FAA regulations that require reports of UAP close encounters or close encounters with any other aircraft would be sufficient. This, however, probably makes it simpler for civilian pilots to make their reports and would require the FAA to take those reports seriously. The problem here is one that we've faced for decades. Pilots, especially commercial pilots, have been threatened with the loss of their jobs if they reported UFOs. Ben Hansen told News Nation that pilots have told him about being taken into the office of the chief pilot and then threatened with repercussions if they insisted on making an official UAP report. Probably the best-known example of this was the pilot of JAL-1628, who lost his job as pilot after reporting a UFO that he and his crew had seen and that was tracked by radar on November 17, 1986. Richard Haynes and his group did manage to reverse that decision and put him back in the cockpit, but the point is the pilot was taken out of the cockpit for a time. And as a side, John Callahan of the FAA told me that he had complete radar records of the sighting. Callahan was at a White House briefing years ago with the FAA records, including copies of those radar materials, and nothing has really come from that. All this means is that I'm not sure how useful the legislation protecting pilots who report UFOs can be. There have been periods during the whole of the modern UFO era where pilots suffered no repercussions for reporting their sightings and other times when reporting a sighting killed the career. A more recent example of a pilot sighting in which there wasn't a repercussion was near Harrisburg, Harrisburg Virginia on July 10, 2022. The pilot, Julius Figueroa, was flying the aircraft for a group of skydivers. He said they were climbing through 4,000 feet when something caught his eye. He described the object as a spherical golden globe flying very fast. He said that it was the size of a small car, and I can't help but think of the Volkswagen Beetle here. As the object passed the plane, he said that three of the skydivers, including the instructor, also saw the UFO. He said by the time he got turned around, the object was gone. And here's the important point. He called air traffic control and asked if they had a drone near him on their radar uh, close to his aircraft. They said they hadn't. He called again later describing the UFO and asked again if they had seen it. He said after a long pause, they said they hadn't. All this suggests to me that it's going to take a long time until the pilots feel comfortable reporting UFOs to any authorities 
given the history of the phenomenon. And that's all for tonight, George. All right, my friend, we'll talk to you next week. In a moment, independent candidate for president Robert F. Kennedy Jr. back with us on Coast to Coast. And he is next. We'll talk about some issues that affect all of us next on Coast to Coast AM. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is an independent candidate for president of the United States this year. As president, he would restore the middle class, unwind the war machine, unravel corporate capture, end the chronic disease epidemic, secure the border, protect our wild places, and many other issues he'll talk to you about. Here he is back on Coast to Coast. Robert, how are you? I'm good, George. Thanks for having me back. Great. And how is your mother, Ethel, doing? God love her. She's going to be 96 this year. Uh, She is, and she's doing well. I mean, we're very, very lucky to have her around for so long. Oh, that's great. Robert, you come from a family that is staunch Democratic. Your uncle, uh, the late uh, John F. Kennedy president, your father, the senator. Everybody was Democrats, Ted Kennedy. You've decided to switch and become an independent. How come? Well, I was the last person in my campaign to want to switch parties because, as you say, George, I was raised in the Democratic Party. It was part of my DNA. My family family was a centerpiece of the Democratic Party um, beginning. Well, really, you know, my great-grandfather, Honey Fitz, was the first ghetto Irish Catholic mayor of Boston. Um, His contemporary, my other great-grandfather, Patrick Kennedy, was a state legislator and a party boss in, in Boston. Oh, and then, of course, my uncle was the president. I, my father and Uncle Teddy were were, uh, were U.S. senators, and you know, many other members of my family were in the Democratic Party and in the center. But um, the the Democratic Party has departed from a lot of the values that I grew up with. And my idea during this campaign, the initial stage of this campaign was to try to summon the party back to those original ideas. Um, But we figured out very early on that the Democratic Party was not going to allow me to compete fairly in a campaign. And I think the coup de grace was when they changed the rule to say that anybody who stepped in the state of New Hampshire could not win any delegates from New Hampshire. So even if I won 100% of the vote in New Hampshire, all of my delegates would go to President Biden. And at this point now, they've taken four of the primaries away completely. So they're fixing the... uh, uh, And and in fact, it was over 60 rules. Somebody did it inventory of 60 rules that were passed by the Democratic Party to make sure that nobody but President Biden could win the election. And it also, George, just felt better for me not to be part of the of the partisanship, of the polarization, of the rancor, the vitriol, the backroom deals, the smoke-filled rooms, and to be able to step away from all of that and and be outside of the party and be able to look at issues, not as Democratic issues or Republican issues, but to say, you know, is closing the border good for our country and, and enlarging legal immigration? Is that good for our country? And it, whether whether it's good, good, whether it's a 
democratic issue, Republican issue, is irrelevant to me now, and it allowed me, it freed me to be able to look at every issue on its own merits rather than obey some kind of party orthodoxy. Some of the polls that I've seen lately, Robert, show that uh, one in four people would vote for you if given the opportunity. And as an independent, that's absolutely astounding. Yeah, I'm actually beating both President Biden and President Trump among Americans under 45 years old. I'm also beating them uh, among independents, which is now the largest political affiliation for the first time in history. This this uh, election, independents will be the largest group of, of people, larger than Democratic Republican. Uh, my favorability ratings are 10 points ahead of President Trump and 11 points ahead of President Biden. And so, you know, I have, and, and both of those presidents who are now running for office have the lo- lowest ranking in terms of favorability of anybody who's ever run for president as a candidate of the major parties. Can you get so, on the ballot? Can you get on the ballot on all 50 states? Yeah, I will be on the ballot on all 50 states and in the District of Columbia. Well, this is going to be an intriguing election. Uh, I don't know who's going to get the Republican nomination. It seems to be going back and forth between uh, former President Trump and Nikki Haley. We shall see. He did very well in the Iowa caucuses. We'll see what happens in New Hampshire. But what happens, Robert, if he gets the nomination and then gets convicted on some of these charges that are out there? It shouldn't matter um, in terms of his the legality of him running for office, there's only three requirements in the Constitution for being president of the United States. And, you know, one is the age requirement over 35. The other is that you're a citizen. And the third is that you were born in the United States. And uh, there's nothing to prevent a convicted felon, even somebody who's serving time in prison, from being elected president. It would be awkward, but it would not be illegal. And but I and I don't know how it would affect his popularity. It seems, you know, at this point, that all the lawsuits against him are actually increasing his popularity and increasing the footprint of his base. You know, that's true. It's truly amazing. He's got uh, he's got a lot of people behind him. It's going to be an intriguing race. Is this is I think. The first time that you have uh, jumped in to run for president, isn't it? Yeah, it's the first time I've run for any political office. I remember when you were on our show a couple of years ago talking about the various work that you've done. What what made you decide to run? Well, I felt I was losing my country and I was losing my the political party that I was raised in had lost its way. I thought both parties had been the party of war. Both parties were the party of the lockdowns. There was, you know, we all of a sudden closed 3.3 million businesses in this country with no scientific citation, no due process, no just compensation, just a 50-year bureaucrat ordering that all the businesses be shut down. And 
and, and you know, Anthony Fauci in sworn testimony before the Senate last week admitted they never had any scientific evidence about social distancing or business closure. He said it just came from somewhere. It just appeared one day, the idea. So, you know, it shifted $4 trillion in wealth from the American middle class to this new oligarchy of billionaires. President Biden and President Trump created 500 billionaires in 500 days during the pandemic. And it was it was really the final death blow to the American middle class. And people in this country are now struggling, and nobody's talking for them. Because both political parties, after the Citizens United case, are now owned by BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, by the military contractors, Northrop Norfolk Grumman, Raytheon, Boeing, Lockheed, General Dynamics, uh, the big banks, and the pharmaceutical companies, and, and the oil and coal now own both political parties. Both political parties are the parties of war. Both political parties are the parties of lockdown. Um, both political parties are engaged in censorship of one kind and another. So it seems, you know, I was vigilant about all of these issues, and um, and I felt like I needed to have a voice. I felt like a lot of Americans were feeling the way that I was about it, and at least I should. This would give me an opportunity. To talk about these issues, and then I saw polls that were done by Jeremy Sogby, who was one of the big polling houses. I never knew Sogby, but he contacted me in 2021. Yeah, I, I, I know him. Jim Sogby or Jeremy? Well, this is Jeremy. It's his John, brother. Uh, yeah, yeah um, and he contacted me, and he had put my name in a series of polls. And he said, he sent me an email and said, I need to talk to you about these results. And he came to my home in California and went through these results. And he, you know, he said at the end, you can win the presidency. And it was shocking to me because I'd had nothing but bad publicity for five years. I had literally thousands of articles written about me, all of them saying that, you know, I was one form or another, that I was a quack, a conspiracy theorist any science, um, et cetera. And it was hard for me to believe that there were any large cohort outside of the medical freedom movement that was, you know, that would view me favorably. And yet my numbers show that I could, uh, you know, that I had a high, high popularity, in fact, higher than anybody that they polled. So on that, you know, I showed those to my wife and we spent six months talking about it and then decided to do it. What happens, Robert, if uh, you three major candidates, President Biden, Donald Trump, and you, don't get enough of the 270 electoral votes separately? What happens? Then it goes to a contingency election. And in a contingency election, the Senate chooses the vice president and the House chooses the president. But and normally you would, and each state gets one vote. 
So the congressional delegation has to decide, has to agree on whose side to cast the one vote from that state. And normally you would say, okay, that's going to give the election to President Trump. Because there are nine more Republican states, red states and blue states, but the Constitution requires that they get that the winner must have 26 votes. Hold on for a second, Robert. We're coming up to a break. We'll pick it up right there. We'll take calls with you next hour, as a matter of fact. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., our special guest, his website, Kennedy24.com, linked up at coasttocoastam.com. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. with us as we talk about his presidential push. Robert, so we were talking about the Electoral College, and if there's not enough votes, what do you think will happen? So we're looking for Robert F. Kennedy. He has disappeared on us, but we will try to get him back as soon as we can. Robert, you with us? Later. There you go. I'm with you, George. There you go. Anyways, if we don't get enough electoral votes for any individual, what happens? It, it, in the case that nobody gets 270 votes, it goes to a, um, a, a contingency election where Congress, the, the Senate chooses the vice president, Congress chooses the, uh, the president. It's one state, one vote. And the congressional delegates of that state need to agree with each other on who to support. So you would normally think that that would put the election to Donald Trump because the Republican states, the red states, uh, outnumber the blue states by nine. However, there is no, there's not enough to, uh, nobody gets enough under that scenario. If you actually look at the congressional delegations, because some of them are divided, Nobody gets enough votes to go to 20, to get 26, which the Constitution requires. The Constitution requires 26 states to vote for the president. So, and the Republicans are, no, there's no Republican that are gonna, that's going to change their vote to Trump. And no Democrat that can survive their career by changing their vote, I mean, to vote for Trump. And no Republican is going to vote for Biden. So, almost certainly they're going to have to go to a compromise candidate. And, you know, I think I'm going to be in the best position uh, if that happens. Uh, President Trump and President Biden will not be able to win a contingency election. Are you banking on that possibility? No, I'm banking on winning the election. But that is, uh, you know, of course, we're looking what would have, you know, about the impact that my candidacy would have on the how would you handle the situation with Ukraine and Russia and Vladimir Putin? I would end the war. I would negotiate a peace. Why aren't we doing because, that now? Well, because the U.S. White House doesn't want peace. And, you know, President Vladimir Putin has twice come to term sheets with Zelensky in Ukraine. The first was the Minsk Accords, where they agreed on a settlement. And and Putin's one thing that he demands is an agreement never to put NATO into Ukraine, which is a, a legitimate security demand. And, um, and 
President Zelensky actually ran for president in 2019 and won with 70% of the vote. This is a political novice who's a comedian and actor because he promised to sign the Minsk Accords, which were negotiated with Russia, uh, Ukraine, Britain, France, and Germany. So everybody agreed to it, but the White House killed it. And Victoria Nuland and the neocons in the White House did not want peace with Russia. And then in April of 2022, uh, Zelensky went to Israel and Turkey because the United States would not help him negotiate a peace. He went to Israel and Turkey, and uh, and Erdogan and Naftali Bennett, who's the Israeli prime minister, negotiated a new peace agreement that was based upon the Minsk Accords. And Zelensky's team initialed it, the Russian team initialed it. Vladimir Putin was already withdrawing troops from Ukraine. And President Biden sent Boris Johnson over and made force Zelensky to tear up the agreement. It kind of reminds me, Robert, of 1962. You were just a little youngster at the time. But uh, your father and your uncle negotiating with uh, Nikita Khrushchev on the Cuban Missile Crisis your dad ended yeah. up writing the book 13 Days, which was a classic. Um, but it yeah, kind well, of feels of like the same there. thing, doesn't it? Well, you know, at that time, my uncle was surrounded by an intelligence apparatus and military brass and wanted to go to war with Russia. Same thing. And they, you know, considered him a traitor because he said, I'm not going to invade Cuba. Because if I invade you, if we knock out those Russian missiles, the 64 missile launchers, he has the CIA. Who is the crew on those? Are they Russians or are they Cubans? As it turns out, there was 100 Russians in each one of those. And my uncle said to him, if I kill Russians, isn't Khrushchev going to have to go into Berlin? And the CIA and, and you know, Louis Levinson, the chief of staff, Joint, you know, joint the chair of the Joint Chiefs, and we don't think they have the guts to do it. And Curtis LeMay, so that was their answer. My uncle said, "I'm not taking that risk on world peace." And he did, you know, he did the embargo instead. And then they made a secret deal with Russia, and it turns out Russia had put those missiles in Cuba. Because we had put Jupiter missiles in Turkey right on the Russian border. That's right. And Khrushchev said to my uncle, you know, and father, I need those removed. And they made a secret deal agreeing to remove the Jupiter missiles within six months as long as nobody talked about it. And that was the deal. So now we've moved NATO. We promised in 1992 when Gorbachev reunited Germany under NATO and, and Gorbachev moved out 450,000 Russian troops and allowed a adversarial military, NATO, to reunify Germany and take all of its bases. And his one promise that he, he forced Bush and James Baker and John Major in the UK to, to promise is that we would not move NATO further to the east. And uh, and then in 1997, when Clinton was president, 
the big Mibrzinski came up with the plan to move NATO into every one of, Russia, every one of the 15 Russian former Soviet states. And, and everybody warned him. George Cannon, who was then you know, the most important diplomat in our history, the architect of the containment policy during the Cold War, and if you do that, you're going to force upon the response from Russia. Russia can't tolerate it because, you know, Russia's been invaded three times through Ukraine. And the last time, one out of every seven Russians was killed. And if you put NATO in all those and you, and you put missile sites in them, Russia cannot, cannot tolerate it. They're going to, it's going to provoke a violent response. Bill Pierce, who was then uh, the... Defense Secretary said that he would quit if Clinton did that. And Bill Perry, who and, and Bill Pierce is now the head of the CIA, Bill Perry, who was then the U.S. ambassador of the Soviet Union, said the same thing. He said it's insane to move NATO. And yet that's exactly what we do. Why do we do it? Because every time we move NATO into a new country, that country has to conform its weapons purchases to NATO specifications, and it means huge, huge billion-dollar deals. Raytheon, uh, Northrop Grumman, General Dynamics, uh, Lockheed and Boeing, which are paying for Congress. So they moved them into all of those countries. We, we then walked away, Trump and Obama walked away from our two nuclear weapons treaties with the Soviets unilaterally. The medium-range nuclear weapon systems, we canceled them unilaterally. And then we moved nuclear-capable weapon systems, Lockheed's Aegis missile systems, into Romania and Poland, 12 minutes from Moscow. So we can decapitate the entire Kremlin leadership in 12 minutes. If we put them now in Ukraine, it's going to be four minutes from Moscow. And Russia can't tolerate that. So for Russia, they kept saying, they told us again and again, it is a red line if you move into NATO. So the CIA and USAID overthrew the elected government of Ukraine in 2014, a neutral government, and installed a pro-Western government that, that Victoria Newland, the Deputy Secretary of State, handpicked a month before the revolution. We spent $5 billion on the Maidan Rebellion, overthrowing that government. And Putin then, you know, realizes, okay, now Ukraine is a U.S. possession. There's a U.S. puppet government in there. And I got to go into Crimea in order to uh, protect the naval, you know, the only warm water Russian port for 370 years. The naval station at Sevastopol, and he goes into Crimea without firing a shot. He, they're, they're welcomed in the street by Crimea because they're all Russians. And the, the new government that we had installed had banned the Russian language and started making war on ethnic Russians, which are the whole part of, you know, which was are 90% of the population of eastern Ukraine, of, of Lugansk and Donbass and Crimea. And we killed 14, or the, the new government killed 14,000 of them. And Putin, you know, has a list of what Putin did was illegal. He's not a good guy. 
I'm not defending him. No, he's, uh, he's what not I'm a Boy Scout, Americans, that's for sure. Americans need to understand that there was U.S. provocation as well. What, what would you do with the Middle East, Robert? I mean, what a situation. You're a staunch supporter, and you should be, of Israel. But what are we going to do yeah, about the Middle know, East? I think, listen, what I would do is I would put, bring pressure on Sisi and Egypt and Aragon and Turkey, and I would reach out to everybody. To see, I'd reach out to Putin. And the, the settlement has to come from the international community. they Israel, Israel has no choice. Without international support, they have no choice but to destroy Hamas. Hamas is pledged to the genocide of the Jewish people, not only in Israel, but worldwide. It, its charter requires that. Its charter forbids, says it's a violation of Islamic law. They even negotiate with Israel, except as a ruse. It says that in its charter. And, uh, and, you know, it, they've had five ceasefires, and Hamas has violated every one. Hamas has—the people of Palestine have gotten more international aid than any population in the world. In fact, they've gotten more than—they've gotten 13 times per capita what the what Europeans got when we—with the Marshall Plan. And yet— it, they're still poverty-stricken. Why? Because their leadership is a kleptocracy. They steal every, They steal half the money and spend the other half on weapons and nothing on economic development. So uh, Ismail Hania, who's the uh, leader of Hamas, has, according to Forbes, a net worth of $5 billion. The top three officials of, of Hamas have a net worth collectively of, of $11 billion. Mahmoud Abbas, who's the head of the Palestinian Authority, is a billionaire. Yasser Arafat died a billionaire. His wife is a billionaire. Uh, Mahmoud Abbas's two children, his two sons, have $750 million. And instead of, you know, when Israel left Gaza in 2005, they wanted to give Gaza and the Palestinians not only their own independent state, but also to give them the, you know, economic prosperity. So they left, they gave, donated, they donated to Gaza 4,000 greenhouses, these state-of-the-art hothouses to make Gaza economically self-sufficient. They offered to rebuild the port of Gaza to make it the Singapore of the West. Gaza is they, they in a strategic location between the Suez Canal, the Red Sea, Europe, Africa, um, and the Mideast. It should be one of the most prosperous places on earth. It has miles of white sand beaches oh that God, the yeah. Jews gave, donated uh, 8,500 villas from families, of Jewish families that have been evicted there and that have these beautiful villas overlooking the sea. What did, what did Hamas do? Hamas said, overthrew the Palestinian Authority took 600 police and all the Palestinian Authority leaderships, kneecapped them and threw them from the tallest building in Gaza. And then they spent all that money that was coming in, building tunnels, 300 miles of tunnels, an underground city, and buying weapons to attack Israel and kill Jews. That's crazy. And, you know, and there's no stop for it. For 16 years, they've been bombing Israel with rockets, 30,000 rockets they've sent onto civilian populations. 
there's one of the pieces of propaganda that you hear all the time is that that Gaza is the most densely populated place on Earth, which it is far from that. But Tel Aviv has twice the population density. And Hamas has been firing rockets at Tel Aviv, 2,000 rockets a year for 16 years. They haven't stopped. Robert, we're going to take a short break at the top of the hour. We will come right back, so don't leave us. We're going to take phone calls with you in just a moment. 